I want to tell you about a podcast you should check out. It's called Understood Explains. This season of the show is hosted by teacher and special education expert Juliana Urtube, and it's all about how to navigate individual education plans, also known as IEPs. The latest season of Understood Explains covers topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP and it busts common myths about special education. As a parent myself of a child who's had an IEP since kindergarten and he's now a 10th grader, I know how confusing, overwhelming, frustrating, sometimes daunting the whole process can be. I checked out an episode of Understood Explains called The Difference Between IEPs and 504 Plans. And what I love about it is how easily Juliana explains everything. She answers common questions that probably every parent or caregiver has. She dispels myths and is concise and to the point. To listen to Understood Explains, search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. And there's a direct link in the show notes if you need it. When we define the fences around our relationship, when we say, this is what is outside of the line for me, that gives us a lot more space and flexibility and freedom to play within those fences and to stay within the space. When we know where the limits are, we use the full space. You're listening to Make Some Noise Podcast, episode number 582 with guest Stephanie Gorelick. Welcome to Make Some Noise Podcast, your guide for strategies, tools, and insights to empower yourself. I'm your host, Andrea Owen, global speaker, entrepreneur, life coach since 2007, and author of three books that have been translated into 18 languages and are available in 22 countries. Each week, I'll bring you a guest or a lesson that will help you maximize unshakable confidence, master resilience, and make some noise in your life. You ready? Let's go. Hey, everyone. Before we jump in, it is giveaway and survey time. You know, I've mentioned a million times over here on the show, this is a listener request, or I got this idea from the survey, or someone from the survey recommended this guest. We are doing it again. Head on over to andreaowen.com slash survey. You will see it there. It's uh, several questions, more specifically about the podcast. You don't have to answer all of them, although it would be cool if you did. And at the very end, if you want to be entered in a giveaway drawing, I am going to give away some signed copies of my books. So andreaowen.com slash survey. Your feedback means the world to me so I can make the podcast better and serve you as well as possible. andreaowen.com slash survey. Thank you. Welcome to another episode of the podcast, everyone. I am so glad that you are here. Thanks for being here. Per huge. Per huge. Thanks for being here. I have an exciting guest today, and this is a topic that I've never talked this specifically about on the show, or rather had a guest talk specifically around this on uh, on the show. So I'm excited to bring you her. But before I do that, guess what's coming back over here? Get Guess. I won't make you wait. Group programs. Group programs are coming back. And I'm excited because several of you have DM'd me on Instagram or even some of my private clients have asked me how to work with me in a group capacity. It's coming this year in 2024. And if you aren't already on my newsletter list, that's what I would suggest doing to make sure that you don't miss them. And that is andreaowen.com slash free. You also get a private podcast series if you if you go to that link. 
And that is the best way to find out about it because sometimes, you know, if you just wait until you hear about it on the podcast, you might miss registration, the window. So andreaowen.com slash free. I'm going to send out an email where I'm going to list out what I have going on for the year. And that way, if you want to pick one, then make sure that you sign up for. If you want to do all of them, I'm going to bring you back the daring way. Probably going to do something around how to stop feeling like shit. Definitely bringing you a writing course. Ooh, I'm so excited. I'm, I'm really pumped to do that. I haven't done that in a long time. Uh, so let's get into the show though, shall we? Let me tell you a little bit about her for those of you that don't know her. Stephanie Gorelick, PhD, is a certified sex therapist and master social worker who specializes in working with gender, sexuality, and relationships. She's a sought-after clinical supervisor, media consultant, and conference presenter who has appeared in media ranging from CNN to The Washington Post to Cosmopolitan and Teen Vogue. She's the award-winning author of the professional books, The Leather Couch and Kink Affirming Practice. So without further ado, here is Stephanie. <laughs> Stephanie, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. I am so excited too. And this is a topic I have, and as we're recording this, I have close to 600 episodes and I have never, I've had lots of sex therapists, lots of therapists, lots of people who, who talk about sex and relationships, but never someone who talks specifically about um, kink and vanilla and all the in-between. So I'm really excited for this conversation. Are you ready? <laughs> I am, I am here for it. No pressure. <laughs> so let's start from the very beginning for people who might be brand new to the topic. So can you define kink? Because I think for people who don't know, they might have like a kind of stereotype in their mind of what that might look like. Yeah. And that makes sense because most of what we know about BDSM and kink comes from pop culture, right? And yeah. we usually see it in one of two ways. Either we see it as like the serial killer on Criminal Minds. Yikes. Mm -hmm. Don't get me wrong. I'm a huge Criminal Minds fan, but that's a problem. Or it's the butt of a joke, right? We see mm -hmm. it in like sitcoms or it's like shorthand for that's the weird person over there. Mm -hmm. And so it, it does lead to a lot of misconceptions. The way I explain it um, to my students, to my clients, is that kink is really anything that is unusual for its specific place and its specific time. Okay. That's really important because that means what we consider to be kinky changes. Mm -hmm. If you go back, my favorite example is if you go back 100 years and look at Victorian parenting manuals, they were so freaked out about the idea of masturbation that they sold like chastity devices for toddlers. Oh my they, gosh. Yes. And they encouraged mothers, like the best parenting manuals of the day would tell the mothers to like pin their baby's nightgown sleeves to the bed at night. So they wouldn't touch their bodies in their sleep. I sat today oh and that sounds God. horrifying. People can't see me, but my jaw was on my desk. <laughs> but that was not only normal, but mainstream a hundred years ago. Now we're like masturbation is a normal part of development and body exploration. And why would anybody like be freaked out about that? It's not kinky because it's become normalized. Right. So anything that is out of step with the mainstream for where and when it's happening is kinky. Okay. It's supposed to say it's incredibly subjective. Absolutely. Okay. It changes over time and it changes based on culture. Like here in America, if somebody is polyamorous, we're getting to be more comfortable with that, mm -hmm. with the idea of ethical non-monogamy. But it's still considered a little kinky. It's still considered a little like alternative. Right. But there are lots of cultures all around the world where that is their norm. That is their mainstream. Mm -hmm. And 
we can't just say the specific checklist are the things that are kinky behaviors okay. because that changes over time and that changes based on where you are and the culture that you're living in. And yeah, because I was listening to, there's a, there's a couple of sex podcasts that I listen to every once in a while. And there was an expert talking about how, you know, for some people, even the position of doggy style can be kinky for them. And that's, you know, that's perfectly fine for them. It just really depends. If they grew up with the idea that, you know, missionary position in the dark with the lights off for the purpose of procreation is the way we have sex, mm-hmm. the dog style is really kinky. Okay. Sex for pleasure is really kinky in those contexts. It is very subjective. Okay. And then on the other kind of end of the spectrum is the term vanilla. So can you can kind of talk about that? And then like, can we also talk about like what makes vanilla really great because I don't, I don't want this to be like, Kiki is the only way to go. Everybody listening. (laughs) No, I am. So uh, full transparency, my academic and my clinical practice is entirely centered around BDSM and kink. That is what I do. Mm -hmm. Um, I really don't work with many sort of mainstream couples, but that doesn't mean that I think that I think vanilla is an insult or a pejorative. And that's a question I get asked a lot, especially when I'm teaching like um, undergrad students. They'll hear me use vanilla and they'll be like, isn't that an insult? Why are you using such a, such a derogatory term? Oh, I, I don't feel that way at all. I'm actually incredibly, incredibly pro-vanilla. When we talk about vanilla sex, what we're talking about is people whose sexual and erotic and romantic relationships kind of fall within what is normal for their time and place, right? Mm-hmm. They are not necessarily busting out the whips and chains. They're not necessarily into power exchange or fetishes, but they're really happy with the relationship that they have. And for me, vanilla is amazing. Vanilla is romance and connection and mutual support and that buzz of electricity that gets when you make eye contact Mm -hmm. and deep intimacy and pleasure and all of those things are just as present within BDSM and kink. It's not that vanilla people are lacking something. It's that vanilla is the foundation that we build everything else on. And some people are incredibly happy with their solid foundation and more power to them. And other people like to decorate their foundation a little bit. And that's also okay, but it doesn't make one better or worse than the other. And I don't believe you can really have one without the other. Oh, okay. That's I I I like that last part. And so your so your book is called With Sprinkles on Top, Everything Vanilla People and Their Kinky Partners Need to Know to Communicate, Explore, and Connect. So when you say decorate, is that what you mean? Like the sprinkles on top? Yeah. I actually um came up with the title before I came up with the book. I I had had a, a conversation with some clients of mine. And I am a wordy person, so I tend to fall into metaphor a lot in my clinical practice. And we were talking about this idea of vanilla. And now, you know, post-COVID, I am entirely telehealth. But back in the before times, when I had a bricks and mortar office, I actually kept a copy of the King Arthur Baking Company cookie cookbook in my office Mm because it's like 400 pages of recipes. And whenever I had a client or a couple that was like, I'm vanilla and that's terrible or they're vanilla and I hate it. Whenever there was any sort of vanilla stigma, I would pull out the cookie cookbook and be like, I dare you to find me a recipe that doesn't require vanilla. Oh, like we can add on all kinds Mm -hmm. of things. 
but it's all predicated on this foundation, this like rich, luscious foundation of love and trust and communication and respect. And that mm-hmm. to me is what vanilla is. And we can add sprinkles, we can decorate it, we can create all sorts of beautiful things around it. But that doesn't make vanilla bad or wrong or less than or insufficient. It, it's so interesting, you know, because I'm a proud member of Generation X, where we didn't. Are you too? Oh yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I wasn't sure if you were you were a millennial or Gen Xer. We, I mean, and of course, I'm generalizing here, and I, I'm gen- generalize an entire generation. We didn't have these conversations, and like you were saying, like we looked more at the the stereotype of of kinky people with a you know a ball gag and and things like that and and so i think that that can be one of the reasons that we might find kink scary even just to have conversations with our our partners about our perspective partners so is there is is that kind of it is it mostly like a cultural thing or is are there more reasons that we find this conversation scary and even the act of it can be a little scary so i think there's a couple things there Um, I am a huge history nerd and a huge pop culture buff. And I think, you know, specifically speaking for our experience as Gen Xers, there was a lot of kink cultural media and BDSM imagery that came out for our generation, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't necessarily embraced as like, oh, look at those awesome people doing their own thing over there. Right. Like it was highly stigmatized. Like our generation got... Madonna's sex book and the erotica album. And that was scandalous at the time, right? Like they sold the book, scandalous, um, like a Mylar packaging. So you couldn't even flip through it. It was Mm. shocking. We had Anne Rice writing under an assumed name, writing like um, Exit to Eden and the Sleeping Beauty trilogy and all of these things that were really deeply erotic and overtly sexual and very, very kinky, but she wouldn't write under her own name and she disavowed them later on. And so most of our experiences that we got, it was very public. Basic Instinct was a kinky movie. Mm -hmm. She was a a serial killer. So we were the first generation to kind of get like this mainstreaming of BDSM, but it wasn't done in a positive way. It wasn't this sort of, you know, choice feminism, they're doing their own thing and we support them, even if it's not our thing, that mm-hmm. we get a lot more of now. So that's a part of it. The other part of that fear, I think, is, and I say this as a feminist, the idea that anything that is not egalitarian and really focused on building equality and equity is looked at with a lot of side eye. Right. We have this idea that ideal relationships, healthy relationships should be 50 50 partnerships. So there Uh shouldn't be a power imbalance, that there shouldn't be a hierarchy. And BDSM specifically plays with that. It plays with who holds power and Mm -hmm. how is that negotiated and when does that come into play and when does it not? And I think that makes people uncomfortable because we've been taught for so long that, you know, patriarchy is bad. And anybody that has, you know, if a man holds power of a woman, that's patriarchy, which is not necessarily the same as a woman choosing to share her power with her partner in specific circumstances. In a specific time frame, right. Okay. That's so interesting. And I, I hadn't thought about those couple of examples in many years, but that that says a lot. Yeah. That was, so that was like the nineties. I remember I was in a long relationship back then and I'll just say this. I'm just going to share this one example. <laughs> like my, probably was like the kinkiest thing that I had ever done up until then. And he bit me on the back of the neck 
And it unlocked something inside of me, Stephanie. But I remember feeling incredibly wrong for liking it. And like, oh, I want you to do that again. Mm-hmm. I don't remember. I don't think I ever did. I don't ever remember talking to him about it. Or, and like saying like, yes, I want more of that. And it wasn't until decades later that we reconnected and I remembered it. And I'm like, do you remember when you did that? Like, <laughs> and he was like, yeah. And I'm like, I wish that I would have had the words and the courage to talk to you about it because like I loved it and wanted more and wanted to like follow that path down there with you. And I never did. So it was definitely, you know, I felt that cultural, like social conditioning of like, no, 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 it's, it's wrong and bad. We have to take a quick ad break. And when we, we come back, I want to expand on this. So we'll be right back. If you're a parent, I invite you to join us at the Mindful Mama podcast, where it's all about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent. With sometimes hilarious and always thought-provoking experts and friends, at Mindful Mama, we know that you cannot give what you do not have. And when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm Hunter Clark Fields, and I can't wait to see you there. Listen in to the Mindful Mama podcast. Feel like you're the martyr in your family? You're not alone. Hey, this is Joanne. And Brie. And we're from the No Guilt Mom podcast. Brie, we talk to a lot of moms. Yeah, we sure do. And if you're a mom who has a to-do list that is so massive that you get overwhelmed and you shut down. Or if you fall into the habit of doing everything for everyone and don't know how to change it, we can help you become a no guilt mom. We're going to take you from family martyr to family model. That's role model so that you role model the behavior that you want to see out of your kids. You're going to go from being tired and overwhelmed to energized and guilt free. Every week, you'll get actionable strategies that you can implement right away from the experts that we interview and from us. We also have a whole lot of fun. So check out the No Guilt Mom podcast everywhere you listen to your favorite shows. Did you want to comment on that or do you want me to just jump into the next question? You know, I will say your experience of this is wrong, this is bad, um, I shouldn't enjoy this is a really common reaction that comes back to that time and place sort of context. And that is for a lot of kinky people, a huge part of what they enjoy about it. It gives them the sense of power to confront taboo. It lets them play with the things that maybe have made them feel uncomfortable in other contexts. It lets them reclaim that and put it into a context where they're allowed to either say, no, this isn't wrong. And I love this. Or to say this does feel wrong and I want to explore that and I want to poke it a little and I want to turn it around and figure out, you know, where does the wrong come from and can that wrong still feel good? And I think both of those perspectives are things that um, everybody could benefit from right now, even outside of sexual context, that ability to hold space for something that makes us uncomfortable and probe it. Maybe not jump in with both feet, but, but hold space to ask those questions and to figure out what about this is making me feel weird and what is weirdness and what could I maybe do with that weirdness that is positive for me? That's interesting. And I I thank you for that distinction because like I, at that moment, I remember feeling like almost like a sexual deviant and like, period, that's where, like once I felt like a sexual deviant, we just don't revisit it, like that type of thing. But yeah, it would have been beneficial to to have a conversation. And you've kind of touched on this, I think a little bit, like what is the appeal of kink? Like, why do people sort of like go down that path and, and find it sexy? 
So the why are people kinky question is a big one. And there's not necessarily a single answer. It's more of a multiple choice sort of Mm. scenario. Uh, There has been a number of research studies done and a solid plurality, not quite 50%, but well in the 40s, have told researchers that this is something that has always been a part of their erotic identity, that they might not have had the words for it. Right. Um, but the, as adults, when they look back on their life, they can identify a time in like late childhood or early adolescence where with the adult lens and the adult vocabulary, they can go, oh, oh, yeah, that was <laughs> the moment. That was when I realized I was kinky. That statement can freak out some people. So mm-hmm. let me just say, as a former first response advocate, you know, I used to work with sexual assault survivors. Mm-hmm. If your actual eight to 10 year old is coming to you and telling you they're kinky, that's a problem. They shouldn't have the, that language or that vocabulary. Okay. If you're 28, looking back on yourself at eight to 10 and going, now I can recognize that, that's probably okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I see the <laughs> um, difference. Yeah. Yeah. But a, a, a solid plurality of people will say, this is just how I'm wired and it's how I've always been. About 30 to 40% of people will say, I, I didn't necessarily always know about kink or have a, an interest in or feel the like butterflies around certain things. But a partner introduced it to me. It, it's your bite story. A partner mm-hmm. introduced it to me and something clicked into place. Yeah. I might not have had that early moment, but in in my sexual experiences, I realized I was kinky. And then there's a smaller portion, somewhere between like two to eight percent, depending upon the study, that will say um, something happened in childhood that I feel like is why I'm kinky. Often we see this with fetishes. Mm-hmm. Somebody will say, you know, I I am super into high heels or I'm super into leather. Because what's the difference between, can I pause and ask you what's the difference yeah. between a fetish and kink? That is a great question. So a fetish falls under the kink umbrella, right? Because it's something that's not normal for its time and place. Uh-huh. But a fetish is anytime somebody has a strong sexual desire or attraction to something that is not typically sexualized. Oh, so okay. in my practice, if I have a client tell me, I am a huge butt girl. I cannot really find somebody sexy and attractive unless they have a nice round butt. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to call her a fetishist because in our culture, butts are sexualized, right? It's a normal thing to feel sexual desire toward. If that same person says, I cannot maintain my arousal and I definitely cannot have an orgasm unless my partner is wearing knee-high athletic socks. That is closer to a fetish because knee-high athletic socks are not typically sexualized in our culture. Uh-huh. And if they, if my client would need that specifically to say, this is like really the only way I can feel aroused or without it, I'm not going to have the same level of arousal, mm-hmm. that would qualify as a fetish. Interesting. Okay. So I, I interrupted you and now I don't know if you knew what where you were no. going with the high heels and your so client. The, the smallest number in terms of the wire, why are people kinky mm-hmm. will point at something in childhood or early adolescence and say, that's why I'm kinky. And the big myth here is that people assume that that was a traumatic experience. Like people were abused and therefore now they're reenacting that abuse. That's actually not found in the research. It's usually things like I just I pulled the athletic socks right out of the dryer and the warmth of them activated something for me and I've been really into them ever since. It's mm-hmm. usually much more benign and it's usually connected to object fetishes, not to trauma. Um, but that's one of the big myths. So I always want to get that out there right away. 
So the why are people kinky? Solid plurality says I'm just wired that way. Mm-hmm. Decent proportion says I don't know that I'm wired that way, but once I discovered it, I'm all in. And a smaller number says I had a specific experience that I think made me kinky. Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, it's so fascinating. What like is there? Have you found in your practice and you know all the research for the book that there's a certain kind of people or or you know I don't know if it's like a demographic or anything that are specifically into BDSM. And maybe before you answer that, can you define what BDSM is? Because I think some I mean I used to just think it was like whips and chains and leather and. So BDSM is I, I call it my favorite Swiss Army knife acronym. Uh Because it actually includes three smaller concepts within it. So Mm B&D, bondage and discipline. That's you said ropes and chains that we're talking about bondage. Uh, Bondage and discipline is an exchange of control. Meaning I've negotiated a situation either, you know, for the next 20 minutes or for the next 20 years where um, maybe I get to make decisions for my partner about their movement. Maybe I'm going to tie them up and leave them on the bed while I cook dinner. Mm -hmm. Um, It could be speech. I don't want you to talk. You are absolutely silent until dinner is done. It could be discipline in terms of self-discipline. I want you to stand in the corner until dinner is done. Face the wall. Do not look away. Mm -hmm. I'm not doing anything to physically restrain them. That's an act of self-control on their part. But bondage and discipline, we're talking about control. Movement, speech, behavior. The most common is DS, dominance and submission. In studies and surveys, about 50% of people, when they're asked about their kink, talk about dominance and submission. Mm -hmm. I explain this as an exchange of authority. Authority and control can sound a lot alike, but with control, we're talking, you know, speech, movement, behavior. Authority, we're talking about decision making authority. If you and I are having a debate over where to go for dinner, I want pizza, you want Thai, the person that holds the authority in the relationship is always going to be the tiebreaker. In dominance and submission, that can look like you know uh, rituals and rules and protocols, things that they've developed between themselves to enhance that sort of mutual power sharing. It can take the form of choosing clothing. It can take the form of financial authority. Maybe I'm in a submissive relationship and my partner gives me an allowance every month. Mm-hmm. They pay the rest of the bills, but that's, you know, they are the financial authority figure in our house. This can involve whips and chains, but it doesn't have to. It can be uh, fully realized without people even being in the same room. Lots of people in DS relationships are in long distance relationships. Mm. And then the one that tends to come to mind most often and I think freak people out the most is SM, sadism and masochism. Often these get smushed together as sadomasochism because that's an exchange of sensation. And most of our sensation seekers don't fit neatly into one box or the other. They Mm. like to give it. They also like to get it a little bit. Okay. So sadomasochism is exchange of sensation. We often people who like to get bit. <laughs> yeah. Or tickled. It doesn't always like have that. to be pain. But, okay. but that's why I use the example is because when we think about sadism and masochism, our brains go straight to pain, right? And we mm. think of again the, the criminal minds and CSI, the serial killers. And pain is coming back to kink being time and place specific, pain is very culturally subjective. 
in America and in most of the Western world, pain is not a good thing. We treat pain. We avoid pain. We mitigate pain. Yeah. We judge pain. Um, we very rarely talk about good pain. Like childbirth is good pain. It's pain for the purpose. But when I'm training future clinicians or you know doing case consultation, I always encourage them not to think about it as pain, but as sensation. Because tickling if you're like tickling until you're writhing and crying and it tickling can reach a point where it doesn't feel good anymore. Yeah. And that's still okay. So thinking about sadism and masochism as, and sadomasochism as exchange of sensation, it might be really intense sensation. It might not be a sensation that you would want to receive, but that's okay. Mm -hmm. You don't have to, if they're okay with it, they're okay with it. So BDSM, three separate concepts, exchange of control, exchange of authority and exchange of sensation. Mm -hmm. And every kinky couple or even kinky individual has their own sort of unique combination of those three. And they negotiate their own sort of dynamic around what of those are we going to include? What are we not? What's that going to look like for that? What's on the table and what's off? So it's, it sounds like, you know, also like I wouldn't want someone to bite me like at the cashier at the grocery store. Like it definitely has to be within context too. So I'm sure that's kind of what categorizes it like in terms of like the pain. Yeah. Consent and negotiation are key. Yeah. Um, I do in, in my professional work, I do a lot of expert witness work and I'm often talking to mm. attorneys and, and law enforcement in cases where there's questions of consent. You know, where maybe the verbal agreement doesn't align with what was put in an email, or maybe what was put in a text message isn't what happened in the event. Where Whenever there's questions of consent, I tend to get asked a lot of questions by the people involved in those cases. Okay. Interesting. And those two things, negotiation and consent, are what differentiate consensual kink from abuse. Yeah. In a BDSM relationship... Even if I have formed an agreement with my partner where I am going to be a 24-7 submissive, I'm giving up all of my no's, I'm going to trust them to make all of the decisions. If I go to my partner and say, this isn't working for me and I need to scale that back or I need it to stop entirely, mm -hmm. that will happen in a kink relationship. In an abusive relationship, an abuse victim doesn't get that option. They can't go to their batterer and say, this abuse isn't working for me. I want to renegotiate how often you're going to hit me. And the presence of that ability to negotiate the terms of the power exchange and the ability to say, I want this to stop and have it stop now is what differentiates kink from abuse. Thank you for that, for that distinction. What advice do you give people, you know, either in your practice or even even your friends and family about if if someone is in a partnership and they want to introduce some of these things to their partner but they're feeling maybe they have the you know they struggle just with communication in general what's the best sort of route to get there what do you recommend so i have found and this is a technique i use with my couples i'll have them do this as a couples activity together I have found that it can feel a lot safer when we're talking about something else and not about me so what I will have them do is instead of sitting down and saying, this is what I want, and this is why I want it, and this is what it would do for me, that can feel That's too vulnerable. Yeah, That goes from vulnerable to exposed, right? And then if our partner goes, ew, no. That's not a comment on the ask or on mm -hmm. the idea. That's a comment on me now. So I will often have my couples pick out erotic media and it doesn't, and I mean, erotic can vary, right? I work with some deeply religious couples where maybe erotic is a song, maybe erotic is a, a PG movie. It's whatever level they're at. 
but I encourage them to find something that centers what it is that they want to try, what it is that they're curious about, and to watch it together with their partner and to talk about that. What did you see that you liked? What did you see that you had questions about? What did you see that made you uncomfortable? That way, we're not having a conversation about me. We're having a conversation about that. Mm-hmm. And we're having it together. And we're focusing on this external thing, being transparent about the why, right? I'm curious about this. It's something that I've thought about. I wanted to show you and see what you would think. It feels a little bit safer while still mm-hmm. being honest and transparent. So I will tell folks to find an ethical porn clip, you know, go on adult time, go on make love, not porn, find something and watch it with your partner and just say, this is something I've caught myself thinking about a lot. I was curious what you would think if I showed it to you. You don't have to jump straight to, do you want to do it with me? Sometimes there has to be a conversation around that. Sometimes if my partner came to me tomorrow and said, I want to try pegging you in, (laughs) I would probably be like, no, probably not. But if we have a conversation about the concept of pegging, if we learn about different ways that can play out, different um, approaches, different strategies, different when it becomes a conversation about the idea, now we can find sort of a mutually comfortable zone. And that can feel a lot less threatening to our more vanilla partners too, because it doesn't feel like a request. I'm not coming to you and saying, will you do this for me or with me? I feel like a lot of pressure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Instead, it's, I just wanted to show you this and I want to have a conversation about the idea of it. And if you have questions, we can explore those questions together. I love that. We're gonna, we have to take one more ad break. And when we come back, I want to I want to comment on that. We'll be right back. Oh, hey, everybody. It's us, Blair and Molly, your old pals from Toddler Purgatory, two moms who are also actors, who are also creative beings, who sometimes feel stuck. And now we're back with a whole new podcast about unsticking it, launching in January. What happens when life gets in the way of our creativity instead of nourishing it? We talk to all sorts of guests about how to break through the mucky, gluey, sticky wall that can get between you and your creativity. We hear about their journeys, their successes, their challenges, and even their bougie coffee shop orders. So join us, won't you, as we deep dive into how to unstick ourselves from the life gunk that can get in the way of our creative freedom. Get out of there, life gunk. Let us help you get back to your best creative self. Look for Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. Wherever you listen to podcasts starting in January, Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. Because sometimes life sucks. No one told us the truth about parenthood. Why? This is the podcast everyone needed before they had kids because now that those little ones are here, whew, there is a lot to unpack. I'm Rachel Shepardota, and I am your host for the podcast, No One Told Us, where we tell the truth about parenting and let you in on all the stuff you really should have known about before having kids. I am the founder of Hey Sleepy Baby, but this podcast is so much more than sleep. We'll be diving into all the topics that you really care about and need to know while you do your best job raising those adorable, tidy humans. Our goal is to just make you feel less alone and less overwhelmed. There are so many things that no one tells us before becoming a parent, and I think that we should really pull back the curtain on becoming a first-time or second-time mom or dad to share the good, the bad, and the ugly. We'll have a little education, a little fun, and a whole lot of heart that goes into each and every episode. So join me and our amazing guests each week to hear us talk about what no one told us. I love that advice so much, and it sounds like 
the, one of the parts that I love about it is that if your partner pushes back and by push back, they might say something like, oh, it doesn't, I, I, it's not my, it doesn't seem like my favorite, or I would, I would never do that. You know, you might get that comment. So instead of shutting it down completely and saying like, well, I guess I'm never going to get to do that with my partner. You open up the conversation and might, because this is what coaching is like, what, what about it? Do you not like, tell, tell, tell me more about that. Like, that's another thing we say in coaching, like say more about that and ask them to expand on it versus completely, completely shutting the conversation down. You know, I, I do a lot of conflict resolution coaching and, and instruction. And I always say that no is a complete answer. No is sacred in my practice, mm-hmm. but no doesn't change the need that the other person had. No should not turn into a begging, cajoling, guilting thing, but no should be a conversation starter. I've said no to this, but I might be open to these other things. Right. You've said no to that, but I'm curious, what do you think about these variations? Or um, how would you feel about me watching videos about it? I've worked with couples where the idea of watching, you know, erotic content by themselves feels like cheating. Mm -hmm. Sometimes just getting a relationship agreement that I'm cool with you watching porn featuring that thing I don't want to do with you feels like a huge win. Depending upon what it is, you had mentioned, you know, ropes and chains. There are some things that are sensual experiences. There's somatic body experiences, but they're not necessarily sexual contact. Mm-hmm. You can do a rope scene and be fully clothed. Yeah. So sometimes um, in my practice, what some people want, they can negotiate, you know, I want to respect your no. Are you okay with me doing it with other people? Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's a rope event that meets once a month. Are, would you be okay with me going? Everybody keeps their clothes on. It's not a sex thing. But if you don't want to tie me up, would you be okay with me going to the rope club and having somebody else tie me up? And sometimes that's an imminently reasonable compromise. It's so fascinating. So I read the book, The Ethical Slut last year, read parts of it two or three times because there were some chapters that just like blew my mind. Uh, so I'm super interested in, you know, now that I'm, I am untangling from my, my second marriage. And uh, again, as a Gen Xer, like that was like ethical non-monogamy and polyamory was like, we basically just heard about swingers and again, in like the whispers of, you know, did you hear about the Millers type of thing? And so I, and I bring that up because that part is so interesting to me. Like, I think ideally, and I, I've never done this, so this might just be a unicorn daydream I have. Like, ideally, I would like to have one primary partner where we don't live together because I don't, <laughs> I'm retiring as a wife. I'm, I say, I'm saying it here first, I'm retiring. But just, you know, having that kind of, that primary person. And then if you have like things that you want to do that, that maybe I'm not into like outside of our relationship, then by all means, like go, go and do that. And it's, it's so fascinating. Maybe we'll kind of switch gears here for a second. It, it It's so interesting to someone like me who has just been brought up in this like very narrow social conditioning of you just have one person and you, it is impossible to love more than one person or to be in a romantic, intimate relationship with more than one person. That book, honestly, and even your book, like it is like blowing doors off of just that conditioning that I've had. And it's, and I'm, I'm a thankful that my children are going to grow up where that is more of an option for them. And it's just, it's not a big deal and it's not you know, it, it, it's just more normalized. And so are you finding like on, on that topic of like polyamory and the thought of having like multiple, like in-depth relationships, honestly, is a little exhausting to me, but like ethical non-monogamy, I think I could get on board with, like, are you finding, like, I think my question is like, what are sort of 
the problems and obstacles that people face, especially like me, who are kind of like new into that world? Uh, so first of all, I wanted to shout out Janet Hardy, the author of The Ethical Slut, because mm-hmm. she is an absolute icon. We are um, acquaintances. We're, we're Facebook friends. We chat yeah. occasionally. I, I adore her. Wasn't the um, original version written like decades ago? Janet Hardy and Dossie Easton have been absolute trailblazers when it comes yeah. to normalizing ethical non-monogamy and really giving people solid, hopeful, and healthy introductions to BDSM and King. Cannot mm-hmm. speak highly enough of both of them. You ask a big question. I did. And I was like multiple questions and and, and selfishly, it's like asking for me. <laughs> and that's and that's valid. And I, I will start. I, I usually tell um, my interviewers in like the pre-work that I don't make personal disclosures. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really important because I don't want my clients to, I don't want to mess with the power of the, the, the natural power flow of the therapist client relationship. And I also don't want my clients to react to my personal disclosures, not my professional guidance. So I very rarely make disclosures. I'm going to make an exception for you in this case. (laughs) So I think I am actually rather rare as being a monogamous sex Mm -hmm. therapist. Most of my friends and colleagues are some form of ethical Mm -hmm. non-monogamy. And I think that's important because in Sprinkles, I talk about this concept of radical monogamy. And I want to start with that when I answer your question, because I suspect a lot of the people listening to this probably aren't actively poly right now and might find the idea a little, it it, it can feel like being called vanilla in a pejorative way, right? Like if you're monogamous and you're somehow boring or you're closed-minded or you're like conservative Mm -hmm. or Mm -hmm. So I want to start by centering this idea that radical monogamy is this notion that you're making a conscious, intentional, proactive choice. That you're not monogamous because that's just the default setting of our society and you haven't really thought about it. It's just what you do. Mm -hmm. You're making an intentional choice to choose a closed relationship because of reasons that are you're aware of that are intentional that have been discussed and negotiated. You negotiate your monogamy the same way you would your Mm non-monogamy. So I want to start with that because anybody that's listening to us that feels like if they're not poly, they're just not cool enough to be one of the cool kids. Okay. Yeah. That's not the case. Like you can be intentional in your monogamy. You can practice radical monogamy and do it with an awareness and a sort of philosophy and understanding that we're not just falling into the norm. We're making a choice. Mm -hmm. And that's really important. So ethical non-monogamy is a whole bunch of different choices people can make. And there's a million different ways that can be structured. And that's why each relationship has to be negotiated. There can't be a cookie cutter approach of, well, you're my primary and you're my secondary and you're also my secondary. And I, that's what that means. Like there's not, it's not as clear cut. What it means for you to be my primary might be very different for me than it does for you. One of the biggest pitfalls that I've seen, especially in people that are new to ethical non-monogamy or who are exploring this idea is they want to use non-monogamy to fix something in their relationship. Oh, in their primary relationship. Yeah, Mm -hmm. they go, well, my partner um, has a lower libido than I do, or my partner really hates football and I love it. Could be any number of things. Mm -hmm. Whether it's my partner and I haven't been communicating well, we fight a lot and I just want to feel loved again. You know, you can't approach non-monogamy from a place of trying to repair your current relationship. 
Because that to me is incredibly objectifying of the other people the that other you person. meet. Mm-hmm. They're not band-aids. They're not corks to plug a hole in your current primary partnership. You have to really be clear about what kind of relationships that you want with each of your partners to be really transparent and authentic about that and to treat them as full and equal partners, not as the person that likes football because my husband doesn't. So I'm mm-hmm. going to go hang out with the football band-aid and get that need filled. It's not a check lot. It's not a checkbox of these are my needs and I'm going to find the seven people that let me have a complete checklist. Mm-hmm. It is, I am coming from a place of genuine love and appreciation for the fullness of each of my partners. I'm not labeling them or putting them in a hierarchy or categorizing them as the person for. Or the person who does this for me. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I'm just having multiple organic relationships. And I think that's really important. And often when couples come to me talking about non-monogamy, that's not really what they're thinking about at first. Mm -hmm. What they're thinking about is we're having problems and if we open the relationship, it will fix it. And that Mm -hmm. is unfair to their relationship and also unfair to the other people that they're going to encounter. Yeah. That what you described, like the healthy way to do it. And this is just my, my big opinion here is that that sounds really, really difficult to do well. Yeah, it is time consuming and labor intensive. My my partner and I um, do the Securing Sexuality podcast and we did a conference, a live conference this last October. And one of our speakers, literally her entire hour long topic was using Discord to organize polyamorous relationships. I mean, <laughs> the, the organizational skills, the Google calendaring, the prioritization, the communication skills, all of those things are so important so that yeah. you're treating people kindly and with respect and giving everybody what they deserve and also getting for yourself what you deserve. Like a, like a full-time job. I can't, I, I, I can't, I mean, I don't, I don't want any part of that. Like I, I think, and I, I really love what you said about, what did you call it? Like radical monogamy? Radical ra- monogamy. Radical monogamy. Like I've always had this belief, like what little I know about you know, and every time someone asks me a specific question about relationships, like, you know, as a, as a personal development expert, I'm like, I, that is not, I mean, I'm on my second divorce, like clearly like I'm not getting it right. But, um, I just, what I've always sort of thought for decades is that it is a enormous gift to remain monogamous to a partner. Mm-hmm. I think if it were, it would be so much easier if like once we fell in love with someone or signed a piece of paper or put a ring on our finger, we would instantly not be attracted and have chemistry with other people. But that's not how it works. And so I've always thought like, this is such a huge gift to give a partner. Like, let's be on the same page with anything we can, you know, like everything from from sex to like, how how do you want me to show up for you emotionally? Like, what what do you need? Like all of that kind of super important communication. And, and that's also really hard. And so, yeah, and I mean, I'll, I'll keep you all posted, like how it's going to go for me. But like, I, it just is, I, I'm also like true, full transparency. I'm at a place where it's like, okay, so this hasn't worked for me. I'm, I'm, I'm pushing 50, kicking down the door here pretty soon. Let me, let me try something else as I go out and into this. I mean, thankfully my, my libido still, still hanging in there really strong. And so I'm just going to like, see how this all works out. I, I don't want to be doing Google spreadsheets. I don't, I don't want to do that. I'd rather not. <laughs> I, I will say that, especially within BDSM and kink, because kink is not always sexual. Sometimes it is sensory, mm-hmm. sometimes it's playful, sometimes it is recreational. 
Um, a lot of clinicians and couples counselors and sex therapists will use, we call them yes, no, maybe lists. There'll be a list of behaviors and you'll check off. Yes, I'll do this. No, I won't do this. Or maybe I will. And I have found that that can be too limiting when we're talking about kinky practices or even Mm -hmm. non-monogamous practices. So in Sprinkles, I made a slightly different version of that that actually has six different categories and it includes space for other people. I have, I'm curious about this for myself. I have, I'd be willing to let you do this to me, or I'd be willing to do this to you. I have, I would definitely be willing to. So I would be, I would definitely be, I have, this might be okay to do with someone else, which is not typical in your yes, no, maybe list. Delegation is not typically an option, but here it is. I want to learn more before I decide, which I think is something we don't hold a lot of space for. And then this is outside of my comfort zone. This is a hard limit. And I think that that when we're talking about both kink and forms of non-monogamy, or at least bringing other people into our emotional, you know, domain, that that's a, should be more of an option. Yeah, I think it's it yes or no. Be, yeah, I think it should be okay to say I don't want to do this. I'm not into blogging. I don't want to hit you. Mm-hmm. But if you want somebody else to flog you, that doesn't feel like cheating to me. That doesn't feel sexual mm-hmm. to me. You know, there are ways to have those conversations that can leave space for your partner. And for some things, it can be as simple as I'm okay with you doing this by yourself. You know, even sticking with rope, wearing a, a chest harness under their clothes or doing some form of like self-suspension. There are lots of ways that people can explore kink by themselves, with their partners, or with other people. And I think that often we don't expand the conversation enough to talk about all of those areas. We do have to wrap up, but just the conversation around like, what is cheating? I think so many people have been together for so long and have never had that conversation. And I I met a woman at a conference last year and she was, we were having dinner and she told me the story about her, her partner her long-term partner, and they were in a monogamous relationship. And he met a woman at a conference that he was at, and they ended up kind of sitting next to each other at a um, at a dinner and then were having drinks later and kind of found themselves like kind of alone in this bar and they shared a really romantic kiss. And, and that was it. And he came home and told her and felt really guilty about it. She goes, you know what? At the end of the conversation, I didn't find that cheating. And so then they were able to have this sort of agreement that, you know, if if that happens, like at a conference or whatever, then just, you know, please tell the other person about it and, and have, if you find that pleasurable, then have, have that fun. But their, their limit was don't continue to have a relationship with that person once you get home. So it's just like fun, you know, cause like, my gosh, how awesome is that to like meet a new person that you have chemistry with and share a romantic kiss? Like (laughs) I want that for people that I love. And so I just, I love that story because she was able to just sort of integrate it into her monogamous relationship and, and they don't consider that cheating. I was like, that is amazing. And I think that that is one of the most important things that vanilla people, really every person should be and can be adopting from the BDSM King community mm-hmm. is the idea of very explicitly negotiating the relationship is a core part of what it means to be kinky. Nobody, even if the relationship is for the next 20 minutes, even if I am at a private dungeon space and I just want somebody to put me over a spanking bench and spank me, Mm -hmm. I'm still going to have a 10, 15 minute conversation with the person beforehand and negotiate what that looks like. What's allowed? What's not allowed? What do I want you to say to me? What do I not want you to say to me? Where can you touch me? Where can't you? Now imagine that extrapolated to two kinky people getting married and the conversations they're going to have about that. 
Yeah. I think that so many people assume that they're on the same page about what does cheating mean or what does marriage mean or what does commitment mean. And very rarely do mainstream non-kink identified people have that same level of very intentional, not just like premarital counseling, like what did you grow up with thinking about marriage, but actually negotiating, forming intentional written down relationship agreements from the get-go. Mm-hmm. And I think, and I talk about this in Sprinkles, when we define the fences around our relationship, when we say, this is what is outside of the line for me, that gives us a lot more space and flexibility and freedom to play within those fences and to stay within the space. When we know where the limits are, we use the full space. Mm-hmm. And very rarely do vanilla identified people take the time to really intentionally and thoughtfully do that. And I think it's something we could all be doing. Absolutely. Uh, at least to start. So thank you so much, everyone. Again, it's Stephanie Gorlick with Sprinkles on Top. Everything vanilla, uh, vanilla people and their kinky partners need to know to communicate, explore, and connect. Is there any last words that you want to say that uh, just to make sure that you feel complete before you tell everyone where they can go to listen to your podcast and all that good stuff? You know, I'm feeling very whole and very complete. I think this has been a lovely conversation and I'm so grateful to you for having me. Thank you so much. So where you mentioned your, your podcast very briefly. So where do you want people to go to find more about you and about that? All right. So my podcast is securing sexuality. I do it together with my partner. I, we, we are the quirky couple. I am the sex therapist married to a hacker and he is the hacker married to a sex therapist. (laughs) And every week we have conversations with ourselves and with each other about the sort of the intersection of intimacy and technology and the role that technology plays in our relationships and our lives and our safety planning. Um, it sounds weird. I promise you it's super fun. Anybody that has a Bluetooth enabled vibrator should absolutely be listening to us. Anybody that's online dating should be listening to us. Anybody that uses um, Google Calendar to keep track of your kids should be listening to us. Those are what we talk about. My practice website is boundtogethercounseling.com. I'm licensed in Michigan, Ohio, Arizona, and Florida. So I see clients all over the country. Some of the handouts, the worksheets and things, including the uh, more expanded yes, no, maybe lists that I told you about are available on my author website. My publisher, Sounds True, created these really beautiful print-offs and those are free on my author website. So if you just go to stephaniegorlick.com, you can print off a lot of the interactive activities from the Sprinkles book. We'll have that. We'll have that in the show notes along with the the links to the podcast and also those those websites to the ethical porn that you talked about. Yeah. We we mentioned you mentioned those really fast and I'm I'm sure people might be interested in that and to your book and everything. Thank you so much again for being here. And and listeners, thank you so much for your time. I am so grateful that you choose to spend it with me and my guests. And remember, it's our life's journey to make ourselves better humans and our life's responsibility to make the world a better place. Bye for now. Hey listeners, if you work for a company that does professional development, did you know that I offer leadership training, more specifically empathy and assertiveness and how it makes stronger teams? You can see more on my speaking page at andreaowen.com slash speaking, where there's also a contact button there so you can fill out that form and let's chat.
When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play, and we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. You get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips.